0: And specific to forages, um, our Grasslands Coalition has done a good job of reaching out and trying to help people learn to better manage grasses, to stop plowing up prairie, um, and to move some of those lands back into grass. And of course, there's some incentive programs out there that are helping with that.
1: A whole new era of communication in the crop industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the crop industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the field, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. KWS Hybrid Rye, seeding the future since 1856. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global crop industry.
2: Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Arnell. Today, I'm excited to have Sarah Bowder with us from SDSU Extension, Sarah's been with SDSU Extension since August of 2016, worked primarily as an agronomy field specialist. So now she has a role of forage field specialist. Sarah, welcome to the podcast and love to know a little bit more about how you ended up with uh, doing what you do with the forage extension specialist, you know, some of your ongoing projects.
0: Sure. Thanks for having me. Podcasts are always fun. It's like the, the new way to talk to people anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's, it's a good time. Um, Yeah, so I'm uh, from South Dakota originally, born and raised here, moved a couple times, but uh, still kind of in the southeast, south central part of the state. And uh, I've worked for the university for quite a few years, Mm -hmm. actually, but for extension, like you said, since 2016, I started as an agronomist. And interestingly enough, um, working as an extension agronomist was something I always wanted to do. I had set my sights on it. Uh, early on. And when I was in school, I knew that that was something I was interested in. Um, the SDSU extension structure changed when I was uh, getting my undergrad. So as a result, I needed a master's degree. Uh, so that kind of intrigued me even more. And I went on to get my master's in agronomy and focused initially on research and then went into extension um, and just did general agronomy for a few years, which was great you know, I, the fun thing about being a general agronomist is you never know what you're going to (laughs) get. Sometimes it's the run of the mill. You get several of the same question. And then the next day you get some crazy thing that nobody seems to know the answer to. And you're seeking out all kinds of crazy resources. So I really enjoyed that work, but found myself focusing more on forages as time went on. We Um, lost our forage field specialist while I was the general agronomist and I had taken over some of that work I'd been helping her with and uh, started doing more research on alfalfa and work with various forages. And it just kind of led me to this position. We had an opening and uh, it just was a good fit. So I switched over to forages and now do quite a bit of work with our local and regional forage growers and I direct our new forage association as well. So quite a bit uh, of work to do <laughs> in the forage world. We don't have anyone else in forages uh, with SDSU extensions, So there's plenty, there's plenty to do, uh, but it's a really fun job.
1: Explore the future of agriculture with KWS, a global leader in innovation and sustainable farming practices. Uncover the exceptional qualities of our hybrid rye, cultivating a legacy for a greener tomorrow. Visit kws.com forward slash US for more information and for dealer locations. KWS, seeding the future since 1856.
2: You forage folks are few and far between, really, as a campuser, especially applied forage. Uh, so, so are you out of Brookings or Mitchell? Where uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where you're out of. I've seen some different notes.
0: Ah, yes. So SDSU Extension is housed out of the main campus in Brookings, but mm-hmm. I actually work out of a satellite office based out of Mitchell.
2: Okay. Yep. Isn't that the corn capital of...
0: Yeah, the Corn yeah. Palace is yeah, pretty the exciting stuff. Corn palace. palace, and the local uh, high school team is the Colonels. so mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's funny. I, <laughs> I think only know from a few anyway. uh, snow goose outings over the years, making my way <laughs> up to South Dakota. So yep, yep. So one uh, I want to say again, thanks for joining us. As, as there during this during this recording, there's a little bit of a snowstorm going on up in your way, and so I know you're stuck at home. Uh, but Sarah, tell us a little bit about some of the work you're doing right now.
0: Sure. So one of my main objectives at the moment is building a networking group um, of forage growers, buyers, anyone that has really anything to do with the forage industry or interested in it. Because we really haven't had a good connection in this part of the world in a long time with any type of um, network or organization. There are a few regional ones that reach out, but we're kind of on the fringes of everybody. So in an effort to bring more forage programming to South Dakota and try to get uh, growers, you know, more unified and together, we ended up building a forage organization. So the Northern Plains Forage Association is a new group that's just formed. It's South Dakota based, but really reaches out to, you know, anywhere in the Northern Plains or surrounding states. Uh, The board just didn't want to exclude anyone. So it's a grassroots group built from Uh, growers and industry professionals putting it together. And, you know, we kind of ran our first year here. We're a little over a year in, ran on a shoestring and a prayer, but we had really good supporters and sponsors and our board members that are industry reps really helped us out. And now we're gaining membership from both businesses and individuals. And it's been a great way to focus on not only uh, the growers learning from each other, but I can get information from them, which mm-hmm. is something that a lot of times in the extension world, we, we really have a hard time with anymore. Right. I don't have to yeah. tell you that. So I have great connections with growers from all over because of the group. And it's slowly growing. And the programming that I do with extension kind of melds well with what they're doing. And so we're able to kind of grow that forage network in the, this general area. Mm-hmm.
2: But, I mean, it's really needed. I know on a regular basis, especially, you know, during drought. It's always during drought. We're having the conversation from the forage producers or the forage buyers. You know, what do we need to do as far as a production? And then the buyers come in. Where do we get it from? Cattle, cattle producers, you know, Oklahoma's a fairly cattle-dense state. And so, every drought there is, we're always looking for buyers. Getting into that, kind of might a question about more about the region you're in in our state with uh, especially with the new climate smart stuff coming out we're going to expect to see a transition in some of our more marginal ground that was either graze out weed or maybe marginal into likelihood with this coming year or two seasons more perennial grasses planted more forages does that transition up into your area or you know what what does that look like
0: so we've had a pretty strong uh, soil health regenerative, regenerative ag movement going on here for several years. The South Dakota Soil Health Coalition was formed a few, well, quite a few years ago now. And I've been one of a few extension folks that have tried to partner with them in some of their work. And I'd say because of them and our South Dakota No-Till Association, along with other groups that have come in, you know, of course, USDA, NRCS and Pheasants Forever and lots of groups like that have worked together. And really combined efforts and growers have become more aware of resources, programs, uh, and great ways to really utilize their ground. Because we're in corn-soybean country, mainly on the eastern side of the state. And like you said, um, there's opportunities, especially during drought years or here sometimes during a really wet year, too. Like people get frustrated and they don't know what to do. And that's when, you know, resources kind of become uh-huh. utilized, right, when you have to. Nope. So I would agree that, yes, that movement is happening here. And as specific to forages, um, our Grasslands Coalition has done a good job of reaching out and trying to help people learn to better manage grasses, to stop plowing up prairie, um, and to move some of those lands back into grass. And of course, there's some incentive programs out there that are helping with that. But these groups, these grower groups with our new Forage Association included, have really pushed toward that regenerative, sustainable look and tried to help people um, work out the economics behind it, because that's a big thing, right? You don't Mm want to dive into something new, scary enough to try something new, but (laughs) to not know if you're going to make any money or you're going to lose money. So uh, the connections between the growers and then the groups helping to facilitate that, I think has really pushed in that direction and we're also seeing forage growers ask more questions and look more towards alternative forages. Um, we have a forage field day every year. I share it with UNL. Mm-hmm. So we go back and forth. The Haskell Egg Lab is in northern Nebraska. And then uh, we're in Beersford on the opposite year here in southeast South Dakota. So we go back and forth. And this last year, we partnered with a couple groups to put that on. Um, I 29 Moo You is a dairy group. And then the Forage Association and um, a couple other universities so we worked on that all together brought a bigger audience in and focused on sorghum and what was really interesting about that is the growers that came that have never grown sorghum or it's been years and years and years Mm -hmm. since they've grown sorghum and they had so many good questions and just like the basics behind how do i grow this crop intentionally because around here uh, especially where we have higher rainfall People grow sorghum as plan B or C, (laughs) you know, it's not plan A. So there was that particular program was really fun because they got to see some of our sorghum research plots and ask a lot of questions. And it was very eye opening for me as an extension uh, person to see how many people really don't know, you know, the basics behind it or had some really great questions about that alternative forage and other Other alternative forages, too, you know, we hear a lot about cover crops, but actually planting a forage intentionally uh, is a whole whole new thing for some people. So and I'm not putting anyone down. I mean, uh, we farm, too, and we don't plant a lot of intentional forages and until we really are in a corner and think, have to think Mm. about it. So sometimes um, just the simple things really count is what we learned from that.
2: Well, that's fun. I'm, in Oklahoma, really, the covers don't haven't taken off well because it's forage. We have so much cattle, it's immediate. Whenever we looked at bringing a new crop in, like canola, we brought in winter canola 15, 20 years ago. The first question out of the majority of the farmers was, can we graze it? So, you know, our, our farmers are used to that, that grain cattle. in, And so really cover crops as a cover crop only didn't last long because immediately they saw green and they saw gain. And so it was, you know, then it was controlling how much we can graze that cover and and still have the same benefit.
0: Yeah. Well, and you have less rainfall there too. So I don't know what your average rainfall is, but it's got to be. We we work between
2: 10 and 50 inches.
0: So it really varies. Really, yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: from corner to corner, 10 to 50.
0: Okay. Well, I, ours is pretty variable, too, mm-hmm. if you say from corner to corner. You know, this part of the state, yeah. you're going to see 20 to 25. So mm-hmm. there's enough, or sometimes more, sometimes less, of course, but there's enough rainfall that we're just not seeing, um, uh, typically not seeing a lot of issues with cover crops taking yep. off. Now, there's yep. been several dry years here where we have had problems, but mm-hmm. it's a little easier to get adoption when it actually rains.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, do you work primarily with uh, introduced species or, or, you know, produced forages or do you also work with some of the the natives and rangeland?
0: I don't focus as much on the grasses in the range because we have range specialists. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wasn't trained not well anyway, um, or specifically in range. So I can't say I can speak to a lot of that, but sometimes, uh, what we're trying to do works together. You know, if someone's Mm -hmm. trying to plant a perennial grass stand, but they want a nurse crop or they want to put an annual in first, Mm -hmm. you know, then they're working with both myself and the range specialist. But I do a lot of work on, um, like I said, the alternative forages that we don't think about. And then also alfalfa. You know, we're one of the top alfalfa producers in the nation. And we don't spend enough time, I don't think, as a university focusing on alfalfa. It's kind of true, unless you're in maybe Wisconsin or Kentucky or Mm -hmm. California, there's just not Mm -hmm. enough time and energy Mm -hmm. spent on our forage crops. So I do work quite a bit with alfalfa. We have some variety trials, we do commercial variety trials. And then I have some standalone work that i do um the most recent years i've done seeding rate and inoculum trials um once we did an amf um mycorrhizal fungi biological study that those results are coming soon that was multi-state and should be really interesting Um, but i also you know have research plots on sorghum we do some winter annual um forage plots we also do some warm season in the summer so some are grazed some are harvested just depends on the year
2: on your sorghums, is it a sorghum sedan? Is it brown midrib? What What are the things that fit well into your environment?
0: So the sorghum plots that are at the farm right now, and when I say at the farm, I do most of my work at the Southeast Research Farm because it's closest to me, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where the forage equipment is of SDSUs. So the sorghum work is recent. As of the last couple of years, we hadn't done sorghum work for a while. So we actually have a commercial variety trial, and you we allowed entries of any type. So it was, um, sorghum, sorghum, sedan, sedan grasses. Mm -hmm. And then there's a couple BMR too, I believe Mm -hmm. in there. And it could be a one or a two cut system. And we've actually offered that in the past with grazing as an option too. That's really hard to do though. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this year we just did some silage option, but, um, and then I also have a, I'm a co-PI on a study. Iowa State has a sorghum breeder. She does a great job, and Mm -hmm. she really focuses on breeding these northern uh, varieties that can survive in our northern climates. And um, so I'm a co-PI on a project with her where we're trying to find new lines. So it's another Mm -hmm. variety trial, essentially, focusing on similar things. So yeah, we do a little bit of everything. Um, If I had all the time and money, you know, we would do more, but (laughs) we do what we can. (laughs)
2: Well, getting back to the uh, alfalfa and the network. So when you're working with your, your producers in that network, and if we look at alfalfa as, uh, as one of your primaries, what are some of the most common questions that you're hearing? What's, what's some of the, the things that you tend to see as a, a common occurrence as far as the questions go from your farmers?
0: That is a fantastic question. And, of course, it depends on the time of year. Of course. But like this last year, for example, once – One blister beetle is spotted in the state. It's like chaos ensues. Mm -hmm. So insect issues, but specific to anything toxic like blister beetles are a big one. And then helping people, it seems like the main question we get aside from that is helping people identify why their alfalfa looks like it does, um, what that symptom is. Is it an insect? Is it a disease? Mm -hmm. And it's so variable on the year, um, what insect issues we might have here. Or just to plant disease, you know, if we have a really thick stand and it's irrigated, uh, we have some very large irrigation uh, producing, very large producing irrigation fed farms in this area that grow alfalfa. And once in a while, you see some disease issues there. So I would say the, the pests are probably the biggest thing, insect and disease. But aside from that, um, occasionally I'll get like a feeding question to the point of, you know, I found this in my hay, is it safe or what species mm-hmm. are in this hay? That's a hard one. <laughs> like can yeah. we can we send this to a lab for species testing? <laughs> no. Not really, but you can please send me don't. a picture. Yeah, please. <laughs> <don't>. <laughs> so, you know what it, it's very um dependent upon the year. I'd say the the other question I get is what mm-hmm. variety should I mm-hmm. plant, which is super dependent on what you want to do with it. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly to a lot of people
2: so, what's the, the common stand life for for your area? If you're looking at the average, you know, you, there's always extremes on both ends. But what's the average, and how do they follow out? What's what's some of the crop rotation they use in the region if they're in a, a long term alfalfa stand? That
0: <laughs> that is a great question. Dairy farmers will go three ish years, you okay. know. In a lot of cases, it's high um, high producing. Some are less. Some might go a year more but typically not more than four in most of those situations. And a lot of them are looking for feed. So they try to rotate out to corn silage. Um, Now, there's a few that are very uh, resilient, you know, soil resiliency minded, and they might rotate out for a couple of years to something other than corn silage, just trying to get another cool season crop in the rotation. But typically you're going to see corn silage and alfalfa. There's a few that will rent out maybe for a year to get Uh something else on there. Um, And then if you're looking at a beef producer who raises their own alfalfa, a lot of times the stands are let they they're let sit a little longer. I'd say the average stand, you know, to get the great plant health out of it is three to four years. But people will go five Um, if they have good rainfall, they'll let it go longer. I know out west I've done some alfalfa surveys and I've been in grass alfalfa stands that people say they don't know how old they are. They've been there. Oh, yeah, I have um, (laughs) to. It's like, oh. Well, that's fun. I wonder how old this, you know, this plant is when it was all started. But um, you know, you go further west, and you could see twenty-year stands. It's not that strange. 10 to twenty-year stands um, in this part of the country, four, five, six, maybe. Is that a winter that.
2: kill issue? Is it survivability what you know what? Because I'm thinking in, in Oklahoma, we're probably six to eight. Six to eight years is probably a fairly. On somebody maintaining and early looking mm-hmm. into that, six mm-hmm. to not uncommon.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, what's uh, about your Why is it a shorter term?
0: A lot of it's winter kill if you're comparing to further south. Yeah, we've got winter kill issues. Um, the irrigated farms can probably go a little longer mm-hmm. than some of the others, but the other part is just most of it's dry land. So, you have the variability of um, stand health and stand vigor. Uh, the But the December ice. Rain type things that happen mm-hmm. really do us in on winter kill a lot of times. Mm-hmm. We're just having an open winter with no snow. Occasionally that happens and then it's way too cold for too long. So I'd say that's probably the biggest factor. Of course, pests can come into play too to be an issue. And the other thing is management um, will have people that just cut too late, you know, but it's before it's dormant, mm-hmm. but too soon, uh, before it's going to become dormant. And then they're just cutting off their stand health. So there's some of that too.
2: So I was in Winnipeg in December and they were fairly open up there. You guys open? I mean, I know it's snowing now, but were you open up until this or?
0: Uh, There was some snow on the ground where I live, but there's been parts of the state that were pretty wide open. Yeah. So but on the other hand, it hasn't been super cold. We've had a pretty mild winter. So we'll see what happens now that it's actually snowing in a large portion of the eastern part of the state. Um, Hopefully that'll cover some things (laughs) up, give them a little insulation.
2: So. Could you say on average, you see at least, you see on average about 25 to 30% of the alfalfa acres replanted each year? Or how does that break out as far? I guess you do. Is it one year out then back in or is it two years out and back in?
0: That really depends on the producer. Um, A lot of times when someone calls me and asks, you know, it's typically if they have a stand fail that they planted Mm -hmm. and they want to replant. But occasionally someone will say, how long can I wait before I put this alfalfa back in? And if it's a really old stand, um, you know, you might be able to get away with planting it back Mm -hmm. a little sooner. But, you know, if it's still thick and healthy, I usually tell people to be super safe to wait a couple years if they can. Now, one one year is great compared to, you know, just a few months. But the allelopathy issue can Mm -hmm. be a big one. And if you look at the research, I summarized some allelopathy research a while back and did a short article on it. And it's like, It could be one year, it could be six years. So it's extremely variable and there hasn't been work done on it in this area, which doesn't necessarily mean anything Um, in this area recently, I should say. It doesn't mean a whole lot, but when you're talking to a producer, that does mean something to people. You know, it has to apply to their area.
2: For those that, that aren't used to alfalfa, and I, I was kind of going that direction with allelopathy because I want to see what you have to say. So share a little bit with the listeners, those that aren't used to the, the, the issue with allelopathy and why we're m- most have to rotate out one, two, or some cases even more years than that.
0: Sure. So <clears throat> in layman's terms, allelopathy is basically a biological issue where alfalfa exudates a chemical that will not allow itself to grow there Mm -hmm. again as a new seed. So there is a much more appropriate scientific explanation of that. But essentially, you don't want to plant alfalfa and then plant it again right away Mm -hmm. because you're going to have serious issues with either it won't come up or it'll come up and damp off or have poor, very poor stand. Um, Typically, when it really comes into play is when someone plants a stand and it fails on them and they want to replant And a lot of the research from Nebraska, Bruce Anderson Mm -hmm. was an alfalfa researcher extension agronomist in Nebraska, and he's retired now. But a lot of his work will tell you 13 months. Um, That's the closest to here that we have research for. So if if I plant a stand this coming spring, it fails on me, and I plant again within the 13-month window, I should be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I let it go too far and that stand takes off, then it's probably um, exudated too much. Basically, the plants have released too much uh and we're gonna have some allelopathic effect from that. And then you wanna intercede something different or put a different crop in for a year.
2: So as because cause you know I'm down south. So do those exudates break down while the soil's frozen, or does it does it only breaking down during non frozen time?
0: Honestly, it's a good question. I don't know the a solid answer to that. Um I wonder if the answer of that 13 months would be different in Southern research. I can't say I've looked that far into it, but it would make sense because it's kind of a chemical, biological combination reaction that it probably slowed down when it's very cold. That would be logical to me, which would mean it would take longer.
2: Well, I hadn't thought about it much, but, but even even in our Oklahoma or Southern research, the, the allelopathy and the wait time, as far as the peer review publications, they're not consistent. I mean, even for us, they're like, oh, wait a year or three.
0: Yeah, nice. yeah, exactly. You know, uh, at so least I'm not. Sure, that's a great question. I've never looked that far into it. Um, never talked to somebody far enough south where it would matter, probably. But I, I don't know. It's a really. I'm good, I'm good at
2: throwing problems out, and very. That's okay. Very no, it's, now I'm going to have
0: to go look. I <laughs> have to research that one a little bit, but I'm sure it does have something to do with soil temperature because the biology would slow down.
2: Yeah. So you you mentioned seeding rate, and that that's an intriguing one to me in your research. And and of course, alfalfa is not the cheapest seed that you can purchase and and, and plant. So talk a little bit about a the cost and why seeding rate is probably valuable in knowing that. And some of the your your work in seeding because you did say seeding rate and inoculum work, right?
0: Yeah. So I'm actually just working on summarizing some of that data to try to get all three years put together. But essentially, because the cost of seed is so variable, I mean, we're talking several dollars difference between planting just a common vernal type variety to a roundup ready alfalfa variety. And those rates can really I don't even want to throw anything out there because they're the range is huge. Huge. Um, But if you're looking at seed from a single dealer, you're going to see a big difference between a common and a bred variety and looking at a variety that's uh, roundup ready or has some type of gene in it. (coughs) for a chemical so we did some seeding rate work and essentially we went from five which is really low like five Mm -hmm. pounds to i think the top was 25 or 30 i believe we went to 30 so we did intervals just to see a curve Mm -hmm. there yeah and i haven't i'm working on summarizing all three years right now but essentially what we're seeing is that like 10 to 13 range is really all you need um, and I can't say I haven't summarized it across the board yet. And this is, of course, just at one site. But we did the same thing. Uh, a friend of mine at UNL uh, mm-hmm. that works for Extension there, Ben Beckman, mm-hmm. he did the same thing at Haskell Egg Lab um, in Concord, Nebraska. And so we're going to be able to compare both sites and see. Uh, but Marisol Bercy at NDSU did this work a couple years ago. And I believe they come up with 11 kilograms per hectare, which is not... Yeah far off yeah. as their ideal yeah. ideal seeding rate. So essentially what it means is that we have a lot of producers overplanting alfalfa because I think the mentality is, well, I only plant it once every so many years and I don't want to plant it again because it's so fickle to plant. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably renting it in a lot of cases, renting a brilliant cedar to do it or a no-till drill to do it. And so they just want to make sure they do it right. And I tell people that if you're not going to take a lot of time to do it really well and mm-hmm. calibrate and go slow. Then you better add more seed because yep. you're gonna. You're so gonna did lose you up.
2: see any excessive competition or anything on the high end? That thirty pounds because thirty pounds is that's a fair amount of seed to be dropping. So was there anything that quite did it ever drop off, or was it more of a plateau off when it it's, you look up? It's that, more right?
0: of a plateau. Now I don't okay. have the, th- the third year summarized, yeah. so this will be interesting because we finally. Mm-hmm couple of the years were pretty dry in the study. Um one did drop off a little, but it's more of a consistent plateau. And I think if it was irrigated it might look different. It's a dry land study. But in this case it just it self-thins essentially. So and the even the five pound plots were fun to watch because they start to thicken themselves up. Yeah. And compensate. So it was really interesting to compare it to the variety trial too and see how different varieties do different things. But we added inoculant on top of that and didn't see a whole huge difference with the mm-hmm. inoculant versus not, but that can be very site oh, site yeah. dependent. Uh, but the seeding rate has been really interesting. So I'm excited to get the data uh, put together. But I, I think in a nutshell, what it's going to say is in that 10 to 15 range is what you need and you really don't need any more than that.
2: Yep. I can see that. And also see if somebody gets cheap seed to throw in an extra five pounds just for good, safe measures and all that Roundup Ready. They might flirt with a little bit of the lower, yeah. lower well, end of that.
0: It kind of depends on your weed situation because, yeah. you know, alfalfa will take out thistles and things after a couple of years on its own. But if you've got a really bad spot, you don't want to deal mm-hmm. with it. That first year is really when that Roundup Ready seed counts.
2: Oh, absolutely. Well, any other work you want to, you know, share with the group uh that you're doing,
0: you know. I think that's the bulk of it. Some research work. We do some programming work. Um, I try. I actually host co-host a webinar with Ben Beckman from UNL, and we talk forages. So that's called the Forage Connection. Little play on the Muppets there. Yeah, um, oh, I got it. <laughs> so we uh, we do that once a month. That's been fun, and are always looking for good conversations there.
2: Um, How do people find that that is it com or?
0: Um, if you just search Forage Connection on any pod, basic podcasting okay. platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, it should show up on most any of your typical podcasts. You can also find it on the UNL website okay? too. But yeah, That's that's been really fun to do. And then working on the research and working with the Forage Association, and doing extension events, those are kind of the main main things that keep my time pretty full.
2: Yeah. That that and kids, because we're already talking about the, you know, the snowstorm and and the little ones at home. Yeah. Luckily, I'm in the office today.
1: (laughs) It's time for our famous three.
2: So uh, as we wrap up here, our three go-to questions, you know, as uh, an extension specialist, do you have a go-to resource uh, when it comes to, to forages?
0: Honestly, I use a lot of different resources. One of my go-tos is my list of growers, Mm -hmm. because a lot of times if I can't find an answer, I know a grower that's tried it. And I would say the other one, I really like to reach out to University of Wisconsin um, in Minnesota when I can. Mm -hmm. I used to reach out to Nebraska, but we've lost a lot of the folks there. So just coworkers and colleagues, honestly, are the biggest thing, because the forage world just doesn't have a main hub. We have some great national and regional organizations, but there isn't like a gigantic um, hub of information somewhere. You kind of have to piece it together.
2: Yep. Well, so when you have free time, you know, what do you like to do in your free time?
0: Well, that's a good question. Chase my kids. Uh, I, uh, I like to ride horses, spend my fair time on the back of a horse, uh, either ranching or uh, just for fun, you know? Okay. That's probably one of my hobbies. I don't get to do very much anymore, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> oh.
2: where, so if people want to know more about your extension program and your research, where can they go to find more about your work?
0: Extension.sdstate.edu is the SDSU extension website, and you can search forages and get quite a bit of information there. The other place um, you can look is – If you just, honestly, the easiest way to find it is to Google Southeast South Dakota Research Farm annual report. And all of, essentially, most of the forage research that I've done on the eastern part of the state can be found in those annual reports. There's also um, some research done on the western part of the state that's typically found on the extension website.
2: Well, fantastic. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. And, and and listeners, you know, if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you subscribe to the channel. If you like what you see and you've heard today, share that as we're trying to build our audience up. And of course, leave us comments if you have suggestions for, for guests that we can bring on the Crop Science Podcast. And again, Sarah, thank you so much for taking your time uh, this afternoon to visit with us. And I look forward to visiting with you more in the future. Thanks. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Medics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.